So I was doing a little bit of research about my guest today, Evelyn Starr. And before I introduce you to her, I want to thank you, Evelyn, for doing something that no guest has ever done, which is actually send me an email suggesting a topic and then going into detail about how you have actually listened to some of the episodes of my podcast. This is very, very rare, but very, very appreciated. And I think it says a lot about you. And before I go too crazy about meeting Evelyn, I just need to say that I met her or I'm meeting her because of a friend of the pod that anyone who listens knows pretty darn well, and that is Mark Schaefer. When I reached out and asked him for who are some people I should talk to, bingo, he gave me Evelyn's name. And so consequently, here she is. And we are going to get to know her together for the very first time. Oh, by the way, Evelyn, I've already started recording this podcast. Yeah, I figured that was the case. Hello. (laughs) Glad to be here. I have to do that because I have in the past forgotten to hit the play button. So anyway, in my five minutes of seat of the pants research, I discovered something very quickly. And that is we belong to the same religion. And that religion is all about brand and appreciating what a brand does, what a brand means. And especially what a brand can do for you, not only you, the company, or you, the product, or you, the service, but you, the human individual who works, breathes, and doesn't get credit for everything wonderful that you do in this world. And I want to talk to you about that, but I also want to go into a little bit of Evelyn's story because it's a story that resonates with me. I don't know. Maybe it's because we definitely have shared this mortal coil for a number of years at the same time. And I was looking about your story on your estarassociates.com website. And there are a couple of things that stood out to me, not only because you bolded them in your copy, but because they resonated with me as a human being. And one is that when I was about seven, I started holding sidewalk candy sales. I set up a table and chair in front of my house and laid out some bubblegum and Starbursts. Those sold quickly, so I branched out to include other th- blah, blah, blah. One thing I noticed was that red candy sold better than any other color. Would you call that your very first marketing strategist moment? Yeah, you know, it really might have been. It might have been. It's, uh, it's, I didn't at that time know to connect my power of observation with actual business and marketing. All I knew was if I bought more red, I would sell more candy. <laughs> this is the intellect of a seven-year-old. So, But let me tell you, that seven-year-old shows more intuition and intellectual engagement than a whole lot of brand managers these days because you're actually listening to the marketplace and watching what the market is actually wanting from you. And I'm guessing you probably bought a lot more red candy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I definitely did. You know, and it was all I could do not to sell only red. <laughs> because, of course, you find something that works as a kid, you just want to lean in hard. <laughs> right. Well, and then you understand the power of a marketing mix, you know, having a mix right. of products to serve different audiences who, yeah, they may prefer red. But if you have red and green and some blue, you might even do even better. You might get that bigger bulk purchase. But I want to say that your uh, kind of childhood marketing, um, masters of marketing degree didn't stop there. It went on when you were 11 years old and your father tried to cheap out and buy some crappy baby shampoo to put in the Johnson and Johnson baby shampoo bottle. And your 11 year old self noticed that there was a big difference between the 
thick and luxurious shampoo that you were expecting of the brand Johnson and Johnson and what actually came out of the bottle. And that is what actually blew your dad's secret. You recognized a quality difference between brand that you expected to get and the brand that was actually being poured out of the bottle. Absolutely. And, and you know, as an 11 year old, I had no concept of what my parents, my machinations might be. <laughs> you know, I would never knew to suspect anything. All I knew is that you know, Johnson Johnson, when you poured it, it was, you know, sort of this molasses like consistency. And as an 11 year old, I loved that. I loved the way it felt in my hair and the way it smelled and all of that. And then to one day open up a bottle that says Johnson and Johnson, go to pour it on my hand and just watch the stuff run through my fingers like water and not really have anything left to shampoo was shocking, really shocking. And so I actually didn't have any suspicions. I just went down to my mother afterwards and said, well, we must have gotten a really bad batch. (laughs) And, you know, she looked at me and she then she outed my dad (laughs) who didn't want to pay for the Johnson and Johnson. He wanted to get the supermarket brand. And so that did a lot of things for me that, as you said, from a branding point of view, made me realize that there's a connection between the product and all the things you associate with a product and a brand. And then it made me highly suspicious of whatever my father was buying for the next little while. A lot of people think branding is about making people buy things they don't need or don't want or pay more for things like, well, I should buy the unbranded product or the brand that isn't on national TV because national TV commercials cost money. And consequently, I'm paying more for nothing more than national TV commercials. And the answer is no, you're actually paying for a marketplace that will buy more of that product. So the product can be higher quality. And consequently, you get a volume price on creating that product that people want. So you get you get better products because they are branded. And, it, you know, I I see you nodding your head and I think we're on the same page. Brand is a good thing and not only for products, services or companies but individuals. What's your take on the whole thing about personal branding? You know, this this podcast is about helping people understand the value of creating a personal brand. Can you talk about your personal brand experience when it comes to becoming the who you are as Evelyn Starr? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that. So I think pretty early on, Like many people, you know, I'm a more astute observer of pretty much everyone else, but I can't see the stuff on myself, right? We can all relate to that. And so I was brought up through my parents with a very high bar of, you know, you put your very best effort in every time you try to deliver something of quality. And so that's what I took with me into the workforce. And I began to learn from feedback I would get when I was in the corporate world before I went out on my own you know, that this was something that people associated with me, that what I assumed everybody was doing, because didn't everybody's parents tell them that, was actually something that was more unique than I realized, and that began to be associated with me. And so that was my first inkling in my 20s, that I might have something of a personal brand, and that it might mean something to someone if they asked me in on a project, as opposed to asking someone else. You, know, you weren't just a, p- a pair of hands. You weren't just a brain or executing some tasks that it mattered who was there and that there were reasons that people would ask you. you know, so that was my first inkling of it. 
And then I guess my other experience that I would share with you is around 2010 or so, I started to realize I'm a marketing consultant and I haven't yet carved out my niche. And I've been in business on my own for about 10 years. And so it's time for me to put a stake in the ground. As part of that, I conducted sort of a 360 analysis kind of situation. And I also sent out an email to a whole bunch of people asking them, what are the first three words that come to mind when you think of me and my business? You know, and I figured because I'm, my heritage is in marketing strategy and research, and that I did a lot of project management, that people were going to say things like research and professional and organized. And that's not what I got. The four things that stood out were intelligent, thorough, reliable, and trustworthy. And don't get me wrong, I was so honored, but I would never have picked those in the way I was looking at myself. And so that was also eye-opening in that not only do people have a brand, but just like consumer products and business-to-business -business brands, your brand is in the eyes of your beholder and the people experiencing it. And you need to understand from their perspective how you're being perceived. Oh, my God. I just want to point out a couple of things that you talked about. Right at the beginning, you said, I asked my friends to give me three words that describe me. Longtime listeners of the, this podcast will recognize that I have a concept I call the key three, which is based on my experience working on Coca-Cola back in the day in Atlanta. And I would have my butt handed to me if I couldn't explain how the ad, the TV spot, the radio uh, commercial that I created, how they communicated the words authenticity, refreshment and sociability. And I'm like, all of a sudden I realized, oh, my God, they understand their product is not just sweet brown bubbly water, it's the real thing. They are authentic from 1886. They were the original cola to go national just one year in advance of Pepsi, which came out in 1887. And sociability, you always drink it with other people, with family and friends at picnics, baseball games, and by the way, Christmas or the winter holidays. Why does Santa wear red and white? might be related to an illustration that was created by Harold Sunbloom in, I think, 1936 of Santa drinking a Coca-Cola. That's not necessarily totally true, but I like to tell that story anyway. But anyway, those, that, the, the idea of those three words and your kind of uh, delighted embarrassment of your friends telling you that you're trustworthy, you're intelligent, et cetera, et cetera, they were telling you why they would associate or engage or buy you, essentially. Your product is not a spreadsheet or an analysis or... No, it's I trust you to take an intellectual look at what we're doing and back it up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So your product is not what you think it is. And with branding, that's almost true 100% of the time. If you think green giant vegetables in a can the products are the, the beans in the can, I'll say, no, they're not. The product you're buying when you buy Green Giant Green Beans is confidence and heritage and tradition because grandma always bought them, mom always bought them, and I don't know why I would buy anything different. This episode of the Nonfiction Brand Podcast is brought to you by my new book, Nonfiction Brand. Discover, craft, and communicate the completely true, completely you brand you already are, now available on Amazon.com. Too many people for too many years have labored in obscurity. Why? 
because that's the way it's always been. Work for someone else and remain nameless, letting others take credit for your hard work. But in today's hyper-connected, everything is media world, that's all changed. In 1997, Tom Peters outlined the tenets of a new concept, personal branding. Fact is, if you're not actively branding yourself based on who you are, what you do, and how you do it, you are leaving opportunity on the table. But with this book and a little bit of work, that opportunity is 100% yours to own starting today. Jay Baer, best-selling author of Talk Triggers, said, The book is outstanding, highly recommended, a spectacularly useful guide to personal branding that pulls off the difficult trick of being both realistic and inspirational. A must-read, regardless of where you are in your own brand-building journey. To get your copy, head on over to Amazon.com and search Nonfiction Brand. And let's get you all the credit you deserve for the completely true, completely you brand you already are. Let me give you a weird example about that. When I got married to my wife, Elizabeth, 25 years ago, coming up in August, I came from a blue bonnet margarine family and she came from a Fleischmann's margarine family. Oh, yes, I know this. And let me tell you, we had to duke it out over that because was there a difference? I don't know, but there wasn't my mind and there wasn't her mind. And by the way, guess who won? It wasn't me. <laughs> No, I, I know exactly what you're talking about from personal experience. And for years and years and years, I was still true. My husband and I have always used two different toothpastes. You know, we yeah. were just thinking rather than argue over the brand and the taste that we're used to, it was not a big thing to buy two different ones and just have us each be happy. Well, and I would say to you that, yeah, sure, there's flavor differences, but it's also comfort and quality and confidence. I mean, what's more vulnerable than putting something in your mouth? You know, so you want to be confident in it the same way that you at 11 years old recognize the, the quality difference with baby shampoo. Right. Come on. But one, one of the things I loved that you talked about was that how you worked for 10 years and then realized as a consultant, maybe I should niche myself. Maybe I should find a place that is uniquely mine and maybe I should find a way to package myself so that people could recognize what my niche was because I constantly reinforce the story that I've written on paper about who I am, what I do, and how I do it. Right. And, you know, I want to emphasize for, you know, your listeners that this was not necessarily a happy-go-lucky, oh, it's time for me to get a niche. This actually was born out of a lot of anguish and frustration because nine years into my business, my husband went out on his own. And so for a little while, I focused on building his brand, which was great. And then when I got back to my business and taking on more clients again, after, you know, the, it's a lot to start a company, you know, I realized, you know, my pipeline had gotten kind of thin and I was frustrated with how hard it was to attract attention and how hard it was to sell my services. And I thought, gosh, I'm 10 years in. I've been doing this for a while. This shouldn't be that hard. And that's when, of course, my marketing brain said, you know, <laughs> yeah. you tell everyone else you need a way to stand out. You know, how are you differentiating yourself from the next marketing strategist, brand strategist, and consumer insights professional? And the truth was that I wasn't. And so... I thought, okay, you know, this is the cobbler's shoeless children. <laughs> Time to get shoes. Well, it, it's very true because, you know, you and I, and, and the, by the way, same thing here. The whole, why, why, do, why is my podcast called Nonfiction Brand? 
Why is my new book called Nonfiction Brand? Why is everything I do called Nonfiction Brand? It's because I am creating a package that says, why would you want to talk to DP Knuton? Oh, he's the nonfiction brand guy. Or he does branding, but it's nonfiction branding. Or he's the guy who implies that there is such a thing as fictional branding, which we all know exists, which is a totally fakey thing that's created by focus groups and has nothing to do with the product or service or person delivering that thing altogether. Is there a difference between fictional branding and nonfiction branding? I've been trying to prove that for 140 episodes of this podcast in a brand new book. But guess what? I'm staking my claim, which is nonfiction brand. So what is your claimed niche territory and packaging for Evelyn Starr? So in the course of my frustration and trying to figure out what was going on, I'll tell you, it, it wasn't an overnight thing. It went on over about 18 months and I was struggling and I had people saying, well, why don't you specialize in the food industry? Because I had work history at Very Fine Product, which is a juice company. People, if you didn't, were, didn't live in New England, you might know them. They used to have little glass bottles and, and cans in the airports. They were the masters of the small juice delivery for a while. And I worked for Dunkin' Donuts. And so I had this heritage of food and beverage. Somebody said to me, specialize in that. Somebody else was saying, well, maybe you should specialize in all new products. And none of that felt right. And so one night before I was falling asleep, it suddenly dawned on me, I'm like, I think my brand is having an identity crisis. <laughs> you know, this feels just like high school. Who do I want to be in this world? How, you know, how do I want to be perceived? And so... I started actually talking about brands going through a phase like adolescence and started talking to other people about, you know, their trajectory in their businesses, various business owners and what happened. And I found that actually a lot of people got into business, rode an initial momentum and then had this plateau or stall happen somewhere in there. And it, you know, it varied by industry. If you're in the tech world, it happens a lot faster because tech years are like dog years, you know? Yeah. But, you know, seven, eight, 10, 12 years in, people like, I, I was in business and I just, I don't understand what happened. My marketing isn't working the way it used to work. And so I became a student of that. And that became my niche, basically, brands and adolescents helping companies who had gotten to the point where the initial momentum had stalled. And what happens is that their marketing that it, they had started with no longer matches the brand that's out there established. Just like when I were talking about, about getting outside input on what your brand is, these business owners needed to realize, because not all of them had back, uh, marketing backgrounds, that the brand they put into the world seven, eight, 10 years ago had all that time be perceived and used and evolved in the minds of their users. And now the messages that they started with were mismatched for the way that their audience was perceiving them. Yeah, and I want to go into that in detail in next week's episode, because I understand you've got a book coming out called Teenage Waste Brand, How Your Brand Can Stop Struggling and Start Scaling. And it sounds like it goes into detail into those late adolescent years and in, you know, in, into that specific area. I want to go back, though, into the toddler years for those brands, because when you start out, even as an individual... Like me, I started my career in advertising as a copywriter. I was a writer. 
I mean, it, it's almost like you could divide an ad agency into the big buckets of creative side and account side. And on the creative side, you had art directors at various levels, you know, junior, senior, executive, whatever. You have copywriters, same thing, junior, senior, executive, and then creative directors, which could either be an art director who was senior enough to become a creative director, or it could be a writer who you did the same thing. But the whole thing is you're just fulfilling a title that has nothing to do with your brand. Well, I'm not going to say it has nothing to do with your brand, but your brand is not the same thing as your title. Because as you said, you may be on the account side, strategy side of things, but that doesn't mean your job title does any service in truly defining who you are, what you do, and how you do it. Right. Same way with me as a writer, people started understanding, oh, when we have something that's difficult, give it to DP because he'll actually understand it and then be able to write about it as opposed to someone who's just really clever or something, you know? And all of a sudden I got the harder, tougher jobs that were mission critical, I think is, is the way I would describe them. Does that resonate with you? Oh yeah, it definitely does. It definitely does because, you know, you could have a whole bunch of analysts you know, I started out as a research analyst. You can have a whole bunch of research analysts in the company. But when the brand, the brand comes forward, when the account person says, okay, who do I want on this project? Because they're going to start thinking about different reasons, you know, sensitivity to something about the client. Uh, I once got on, a, I, I started a research supplier, a market research supplier. And one time they put me on the project because it was for Perrier and I studied French in school. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like all sorts of things factor into why you choose among many of the same, what stands out and what is it that you want to bring to the table? Yeah. And consequently, that's where you can stake your brand flag, if you will. But when you're starting out, my point is when you're starting out, I'm just happy to write stuff. So give me a writing brief, you know, a creative brief for a writing project. But over time, guess who gets to decide what your brand is all about? The people like the account director or manager who you were talking about was who was saying, who do I want to do this? Ah, I'll go with that specific flavor of copywriter because they have what I need, which is, yeah, I need writing, but I also need sensitivity. The fact she's in your case speaks French, has some sensitivity to French. That's a valuable thing. These are the things that are telling you where your brand lies. In my case, same thing. Brand strategy was something I did innately from my very first ad I ever wrote. And I thought everybody else did. Are you kidding? Do you know how many people think strategically in this world? Um, like 3%. That's my guess. Wow. I'm not sure I would have put it that low, but definitely low. And, and that was shocking to me because like you, I'm a strategically minded person. And so... You know, even before I got into research and people asked me to do something, my first question is always, well, what's the objective? Where, exactly. Where we, you know, what is the outcome that we want from this so I could see where we're going? And people would look at me like, oh, well, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Or they could articulate it very well, but then the way they wanted to go about it didn't lead there. You know, and then I was kind of in a position saying, you know, <laughs> if you'd like to end up in this position, maybe we should take an alternative approach. Oh my God. Do you know how many times I have those, you know, conversations, you know, th that's interesting, but it's not going to work for these reasons. How about 
we consider this, which brings me, by the way, to my three words, which happen to be creative. I'm on the creative side of the fence. You're not going to get a spreadsheet from me ever. Although I will use mind maps like crazy. The second word is collaborative. I always work with people and I like to better work by working with smarter people than me and having them plus my work to create great work for our clients and our, the people you know buying the services. And the last word is provocative because I've gotten this over and over again, which is people don't always like what I say, but they think about it and then they go, oh, yeah. Because that's something I found out early on was of something people valued in me. So it, it became key to my brand. Consequently, you've got your words, I've got my words. But I think the question you want to ask the people listening to this audience is, have you gotten your words and actually physically written them down? Now, when you say, and I see you nodding your head, when you say write them down, what do you mean? Is it do, you, do I put them on a post-it note and put them on a wall? Do I have to write a narrative paragraph? Do, do I have to do a term paper? What do you mean, write them down? So those, those words that we're talking about, you know, in marketing parlance would be our brand attributes, right? So I don't know what each individual needs to do to keep those in mind, but I write a monthly newsletter and every time I write it, I, you know, at some point in the newsletter, in my writing process, go back and think, okay, does this sound intelligent? Am I being thorough? You know, am I saying things that my reader, you know, will continue to trust me with? And, and, and I'm delivering that newsletter every month reliably, you know, so in whatever you need to do to make sure that you are being true to those attributes, because if you're not, if you do something very out of character, your audience is going to, you know, take in aback and wonder about it. And so, and it doesn't mean that you need to be pigeonholed, but, you know, you want to deliver because that's how you say, this is the experience you're going to get with me. Yeah. Did you ever watch Game of Thrones? I didn't. Okay. Well, I'm going to explain this to you very, very quickly. In the books, by the way, I've read all the books and I've seen all the episodes and the books are a whole lot better than the last season of Game of Thrones. Just saying. In it, there are many, many characters. I mean, the internet thinks there's something north of 3,000 characters in the book series. There are a lot of families. Each of those families have a castle or a kingdom or whatever associated with them. And George R.R. R. Martin was a master marketer because what he did was he gave every single one of those families the family's words. They'll always say, remember your words. Remember our words. You know, the House Stark. Winter is coming. House Lannister, hear my roar. And a Lannister always pays his debts. All these things were shorthand packaging. Which I would call them brands. So that anyone reading those books, when you're on page 500 going, now who's who? And then you find out they're from House Stark. You go, oh, okay, I know who they are. Because I've got a shorthand understanding of their personal house brand. That's, that's what we're talking about here. It's creating your words and then sticking to them and, in your case, using them as a touchstone to guarantee the quality of your work meets the expectation of the people purchasing it. All right. And, you know, and, and when I say, you know, it's, it's not like I, I think that I would deliver something that wasn't true to those, those four words, but I like to double check. And it's the same thing as if any of those Game of Thrones 
readers would be, you know, watching an episode or reading a book and suddenly one of the families uses another family's words. Like that would be, you know, you would just get the hair would stand up and you'd be like, what is going on? It would yeah. be an inconsistency and you would wonder, did the author make a mistake? Is something going wrong here? And that's the same kind of reaction that your audience has if, if you start varying a lot from what they perceive to be brand. You know, and I like to say a brand is a promise that you make to your audience and that your brand is, you know, the expectation they have about what they're going to get the next time based on all the experiences they had before with you. Exactly. I, I couldn't say it any better myself. And I just want to say it's been a real treat talking with Evelyn this week, but don't worry, she'll be back on next week's episode too. But before we close off this episode, I just want to say, Evelyn, how could people get in touch with you or engage with you on social? Do you have a website or a social channel that you prefer? Yes. Yeah, so my website is eStar Associates. Star has two R's like Ringo. So it's all one word, eStarAssociates.com. They go there, they can check out my blog, they can sign up for my free newsletter, and then they can also find me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Evelyn J. Star. And again, Star 2Rs. Definitely check out Evelyn, because I think she's got a lot to say and a lot to share and a lot of wisdom when it comes to not only building a great brand if you're a company or a product or service provider, but also as a personal brand. Because again, it all comes down to remember your words. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the Nonfiction Brand Podcast. I'd love for you to like, subscribe, refer, and review this podcast wherever you get it, because that really helps other people find it. For now, I'm DP Knudden for the Nonfiction Brand Podcast, and she is... Apple and Star. And we'll be talking at you again next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>